Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He grew up in the London area where he played for Saunders Secondary and the London Volleyball Club. I was going to say London Fire, but I think the name changed there. Anyways, and he's currently the captain of the Trent Excalibur. Please welcome to the show, Danny Austin. Danny, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. Excited to be here. So we've been lucky enough to have some London Cats on the show before, and it just seems like a super athletic community where you can play whatever sport at, at a super high level, and people from outside communities come in, so it feels like every age group's always stacked. So set the scene for me. Were you always a volleyball guy, or were you playing other sports? Just because it sounds like if you ask your parents, you can do anything in London. Yeah, you can definitely do anything. Uh, for that reason, I wasn't a volleyball guy in terms of taking it super seriously until about 17 or 18 U. Uh, so I was hockey and baseball growing up as a kid. And then as I got into high school, it was, you know, I was playing high school volleyball and I enjoyed it, but I was also playing AAA baseball at the time. So like that was kind of the main focus and baseball required a lot of travel. So I didn't play club until 16 U and I didn't play volleyball as a primary sport until my 18 season wow yeah i know people my age that that's more common that it was late entry for your age i'd say you're behind the eight ball because you had teammates probably playing in like 13 you but with uh taking baseball so seriously let me know uh, i think a lot of canadians assume it's the summer season but if you're playing triple a were you doing winter stuff and going to like warm weather tournaments yeah so most years we had off-season training three days a week, whether that be weights or like live BP, throwing bullpens, all that kind of stuff. And then we had additional weight stuff on top of that. And then starting in March, we would take trips to Florida for spring training for a week or two at a time to play. And then season kind of goes April till by the end of fall ball, you were done in like late October. Wow. Wow. And what kind of caused the switch uh, right around 16, 17? We're kind of like, yeah, I think I'd like to pursue something else. Uh, yeah, the main one is just like the realities of like getting to the next level in both sports. So I'd say like with baseball, there's not really Canadian university baseball at any sort of like super high meaningful level. Uh, so you have to go to the States if you want to play at like a top level and going to the States as a Canadian is expensive. I didn't want to go to a junior college because academically it just didn't make sense. And when you're looking at a D1 where they're not really giving out many men's baseball scholarships. Like it's 10 for a 30 person roster. Uh, you're looking at international student tuition at like 60, 70 K us a year. Like it just doesn't really make sense. And then you're like, Hey, you know, like Canadian volleyball is pretty good compared to a lot of other sports and how they compared to the NCAA. So like if I can go to school in Canada where there's a little bit more scholarship money and like I'm paying less and still play sport, I'll take it. And what age were you when you kind of gave up the hockey thing? Because I think that's an entry sport for a lot of people in Canada. But uh, when did you stop chasing that one down as well? My last season of playing hockey was my grade nine year. Uh, and I would say my last season of like really taking hockey seriously and prioritizing it was my grade seven or grade eight year. So with volleyball, would you say uh, Saunders deserves a little bit credit for kind of switching you onto it? Because you mentioned you're not playing club, but I think as far as high school programs go, that's top tier. So I'd say uh, my high school, but also my elementary school um, would deserve a lot of credit. So I did start playing like school volleyball in grade six and like played six, seven and eight and did really enjoy it. Uh, my elementary school was weirdly like a volleyball factory for a little while um, within like a six-year age range you have um both maddie and sebastian lethbridge uh myself my brother ryan who also played at trent 
Uh, Griffin Williams was a team captain at Trent before me. Uh, and then Kiana Huggins, who's an All-Canadian at St. Clair right now, um, all came through that elementary school in about a five-year span. Uh, so I'd say that's kind of where it really started with great coaches there that got me to like like the game. And then when I got to high school, just started liking it more and more as I went. And in a, a center like London, obviously uh, you were a London Volleyball Club guy or a London Fire guy, uh, but Forest City, if they're not the oldest club in Ontario, they might deserve credit in the running with maybe Waterloo Tigers and T-West. But anyways, so you got two pretty established clubs. How do people choose which one to go to? Is it kind of where your friends play? Is it the one that's the closest gym to your house? Is it because your school coach was a fire guy? Like, uh, how do you kind of divide? Because it's usually both are pretty competitive. Uh, yeah, I would say at least in my years, um, what you tended to find was all of the top athletes would end up pooling together at one club. And so everybody wanted to be on that team, um, like grain of salt, as I says, I was not one of those top athletes, uh, a lot of the time. And so what you would tend to see is like either all the top athletes in an age group would be at LBC or all the top athletes would be at Forest City with a few exceptions. Uh, and so a lot of it just depended on like who the coach was for each club, like where people wanted to play the experience they maybe had at that club the year before. Uh, so it was always, you know, everyone signed up for tryouts for both teams most of the time. And then by like tryout two or three, everyone who like was a top player in the city would only be at one club's tryout. Got it. Got it. And with your school ball, um, you may have been retired. Was Rob Atkinson still at Saunders or who were some of your coaches there? Rob was not around by the time I got there. He still came in every once in a while. I remember he talked to us one time before we went to go to OFSA, my grade 11 year. Uh, but it was uh, Mr. King was my senior coach. Uh, and then Mr. Vargas was around as well, who's much newer. He only coached for a few years, but coached boys and girls for a while too. So in a, a community like London, not only are you playing with club players on your own team, but I imagine when you go to just league games, you're playing against other club players. So did that help convince you you could play at the next level where – yeah, technically you're a late entry, but you got to see a, a pretty high level where there's other regions where school ball isn't that good. For sure. Uh, you know, my Saunders team, um, my grade 11 year was probably our strongest year when we went to OFSA. And just off the top of my head, I can name nine or 10 guys from that 12-person roster that played neither the OCAA or the OUA. Uh, a lot of guys played at Fanshawe. We had a guy go to St. Clair. I'm at Trent. My brother's at Trent. Just... Zach Admins was on that team who went to Windsor and is now at Fanshawe. Just large groups of guys would like end up on the same high school teams. So Saunders that year was very strong. And then Oak Ridge and Lucas as well were basically an entire roster of club guys that started for them. And so playing high school, like city finals in a packed gym in London, a lot of the times felt a lot like playing a provincial gold medal game at a, at a rim park where you have stands packed and, the quality of volleyball is not super different. Nice. Nice. So uh, I got to know you're pursuing baseball and that's your serious sport. You make the jump to volleyball. Was there any frustration? Cause obviously you're a competitive guy, you're a high performer, but it's not fun being the new guy or maybe being one of the lower level guys on your own team. So how did you deal with uh, kind of learning the sport and trying to catch up that you could be playing at the next level? Yeah. Uh, I think I tried to find, and one of the big reasons like, my parents ingrained this in me at a young age and I would give it as advice to any kid is like play multiple sports as long as you can. Uh, I think it helps with your ability to like process and make decisions, which is a big part of volleyball. And 
big part of playing middle like I do is being able to process information and make a decision quickly. Uh, and I think planning multiple sports, baseball especially, helped with a lot of that. That was probably the biggest thing that I took away as like, this is going to help me transition into volleyball is, you know, I spent years in baseball learning about like pitch sequencing and like how to throw off the timing of a hitter. And like that plays into like how a volleyball offense is run and like understanding where you need to be on the court and when same thing with how's the other setter going to run his offense. So I'm closing my block, just all of those like pattern recognition things still helped me. The, the bigger change for me and one I struggled with for a long time was just there's very different demands on your body playing baseball versus playing volleyball when you're playing baseball. And I was a pitcher at the end of my career. It's all about put on as much size and strength as you can. And then going to volleyball, it's much more, you know, you need to be dynamic, explosive. The typical volleyball player is a little bit thinner and lighter in weight compared to the average person. Like that was my biggest struggle was the, the physical side of it. Nice. Nice. And as you're progressing, did the recruiting for you start in 17U because you're coming from a different sport that maybe recruits earlier? Uh, or were you kind of waiting till your 18U year before you either reached out to coaches or maybe got approached? Yeah, I didn't even make the decision to look at kind of university volleyball as a pathway until the summer in between my 17U and 18U seasons. Uh, baseball was kind of the priority and I was focused on talking to schools on that end of things. And when I kind of looked at the offers I had on the table and didn't see a realistic scenario where I would want to move to a new country and play baseball in the States for the offers that I had, I kind of shifted focus to volleyball and that recruiting process started kind of mid to late August going into my grade 12, my 18 new year, as I started sending out some emails like to schools I had interest in and then kind of all ground to a halt immediately after because I got injured and missed that whole season. Yeah, take me through that because you and I were talking before the show where uh, you're, you're a little late to the game uh, and then you get injured. So how are, are you a video guy or how are you talking to coaches or, or getting any attention if you're not able to like say, you know, one of the easiest things about recruiting is, hey, if you're coming to Rim Park, I'm going to be on court 32 at this time. You didn't have that option, right? So how are you uh, trying to explain or get coaches to give you attention? Yeah, uh, mostly just using that limited video that I had from either the end of my 17U season at provincials that year, as well as nationals. And then kind of the really early film I had in uh, like September of my high school season that year, because basically what had happened was I broke my ankle in four places. The first high school tournament of the season uh, completely had to reconstruct it through surgery. So I knew I was done for the year. I knew like, Best case scenario, I'll be like hopping on the court as a serve specialist at Rim Park in April. And that's kind of where I got to my 18U season. Uh, so, yeah, I was completely reliant on whatever film I had and trying to convince a school to take a chance on me at that point. You know, a lot of schools that had shown interest earlier kind of said, you know, when you're healthier, we'll take a look at you on court and make a decision. We need to see how you heal. And can't blame a coach for saying that. I completely get it. And just kind of came down to a situation where it was what school was willing to take the chance. And it, I mean, you are the captain of Trent now, but it is revisionist history. Uh, was anyone else seriously in the running or based on area of study, uh, taking a flyer on you a little bit based on video and hoping that you heal correctly, that that was going to be the spot or was there anyone else that you kind of strongly considered to the end? Definitely no other um, OUA schools at the level Trent was, you know, I'd had other schools kind of tell me we need to see you on film after the injury to see where you're at um 
had offers from a lot of the universities that play out east in the college loop there, like the, the AC, AC, I think it's called, the, the Atlantic League. So there's a lot of universities that play college-level volleyball out there. So those were kind of the other options I had on the table. But once I had an OUA offer from Trent, I wasn't really in much of a position to turn that down based on where I was at. And how did you personally deal with the the injury? Because obviously, uh, again, sport is such a big part of your life and you're pursuing so much that you kind of missed out on your high school season, your club season. Like, uh, how did that feel as like a senior in high school not being able to go be like a physical being? There's definitely tough moments. Um, you know, I tried to stick around as much as I could and I had good coaches on my high school teams that were nice about, you know, will keep you involved in some way. So for volleyball, I was doing a lot of work on the bench with our coach in terms of like, okay, like what's their set distribution looking like based on pass quality, like doing all that kind of stuff in game to try and help us as much as we could. Uh, and like I had basketball coaches give me the same opportunity on the bench in basketball. So it kept me engaged with teams at least. And I was doing the same thing from the club team as well for throughout the 18U season. Uh, and then that being said, there's still those tough moments, like, you know, sitting in a walking boot on crutches on the bench, watching your team lose every single set to Oak Ridge in a city final 28, 26. Um, it's, it's going to really bother you, but you also know at a certain point, there's nothing I can do about this right now. And remind me your first year, was that Trent's first year in the OUA or did they play the one before you arrived? So I'm not quite that old. Uh, Trent played Trent played two seasons before I came in. So Trent's first year, I think, was 2016-17. And my first year was 2018-19. I'm that old where I coached OCAA and I coached against Trent. I was trying to find the timeline. So uh, Chris Wilding would have been your first coach at Trent then, right? Yes, Chris was my first coach. He was the one that recruited me and kind of took that chance on me, which I am very grateful for to this day. And what was the the first experience in terms of training camp, exhibition season, starting regular season where uh, new program, so I'm sure there's opportunities, but you're coming off a gnarly injury and haven't played for a year. So what was your, your personal kind of uh, learning path and also like the team's learning path of joining a new league? Yeah, so my personal path, I kind of knew based on where I was at that I was going to be redshirting that first year. Um, that was communicated to me as a possibility during the recruitment process. And then just based on where I was able to get my body to by training camp and like where I was physically, it was just a reality that I wasn't going to be able to contribute on the court in my first year. And so my first year for me was just all about getting my body physically where it needed to be and kind of taking the practice reps I could to adjust to the speed of the game, the tempo of the game, and just like the, the added physicality that the next level brings. Uh, on the, on the team side of things, it's, it's a wake up call to go from a team like Saunders where like in high school, we were winning most, if not all of our games every season, and then going to a Trent team and they're like, Hey, you know, we haven't won a game in two years. And we think this is the year we're going to win two games against RMC, but that's realistically probably the best we're going to do. Yeah, to put it in perspective for our listeners, you and I were talking over the show just about a quick bio. And at, at Saunders, you guys didn't even really celebrate a WASA championship. It was like, because it wasn't an awesome medal. So, yeah, totally different environment. Uh, I am curious because I feel like Trent is at the point now where the alumni, they should take a little bit of credit because you guys are kind of standing on the ground they provided. So, even though the team wasn't being that successful, what can you tell me about maybe? 
like a Thomas Martin um, or our Matthew Bergen or some of these guys who kind of, they, they struggled a little bit and the team didn't perform, but because they battle and kind of started to build the team culture and get trend on the map that guys like you can come in and start to compete a little bit more, right? Yeah, for sure. Both guys you mentioned, Tom and Matt, I'm still friends with. I still talk to quite a bit, um, even though they've moved on to other things at this point, no longer at Trent. Uh, but guys like that did a lot of heavy lifting for where this program's gotten to that they probably don't get the credit they deserve for because it's it's tough to look back at your career and say, you know, oh, in my three years in the OUA, we won one game. And it's it's tough to look back at that and have people outside the program not understand why that's like something to be somewhat proud of or like seeing the, the steps they took to put us in a position where the guys in the program now can do what we do uh, is something that guys like Tom and Matt won't get a ton of credit for, but definitely should because you said it, they kind of built what all of us at Trent are standing on now. And it's a thankless job to grind every day for a zero win team and put in your best effort when you come to the gym most nights, kind of knowing we'll be lucky to take a set today. And, and how do you personally deal with that? Like when we had Charlie Windsor on the show, I, I really enjoyed hearing his outlook because it is tough, uh, but you are building towards something where even this year, I don't want to get too fluffy, but I mean, you, you take a set off Queens, who's like the, the toast of the league right now and will host national championships. You lose a heartbreaker to Waterloo in five. Like to me, it's not these token like, oh, I, I hope we can win a set tonight. Like you guys are, are competing that even when you lose in four, it was a heck of a match. So how are you feeling when you lead into a match like that? Because it can get defeating and moralizing and even lonely to a standpoint where you're just like, well, we're going to lose again. But it seems like you guys are, are grinding and trying to find these positives, right? Yeah, I, I'd say this year we haven't come into a game saying, oh, you know, we'll be lucky to take a set tonight. I think this year we're pretty confident in the group that we have. We know there's games on our schedule that we're not expected to win. You know, we're not expected to beat a Queens or a Guelph or a team like that. but we also compete with them. You know, that, that Queens game that we lost three to one, we also had, I think it was 24 or 20 in the first set and we found a way to lose it. Uh, so we could have had Queens on the ropes if we had closed one more set and just found that one more point. And so those are frustrating moments when you're in the moment and you, you know, feel like you blow an opportunity against a nationally ranked team or, you have Waterloo on the ropes going into a fifth at home and you can't find a way to compete in that fifth set. You know, in the moment, those are super frustrating. And a younger version of me probably would have come into the locker room after and punched a locker or something because I was pissed. But kind of seeing the perspective of like, you know, there were years where Queens was beating us 25, nine most sets and we weren't cracking double digits. And so being able to look back like oh where were we compared to these teams in my first and second year and where are we now like yeah it sucks we didn't beat them and we want to we want to win those games but i also know even though i'm done after this year like these guys are going to start winning these games a year or two from now with the young guys we have on our team and so they're building towards something and you just got to be a part of it and do you feel like the what you're feeling and what charlie's feeling like that's also matched in coach where uh you a friend of the show colin walker is a coach who's been a club director, coach at the highest level. Uh, he's coached provincial team. I think he was with VC for, uh, I forget the youth age group, but anyways, he, he's a guy who just loves coaching and now gets a chance to be a head coach in the OUA. Like, 
how do you feel like he's preparing and building this? Because I never get the sense that, that Colin's taking the losses personally, like it, like it's his fault, where he's also grinding with you guys and knows that he's building something. And not that he's playing the long game. I know he's super competitive and wants to win every game too, but I think he sees the big picture too, right? Yeah, for sure. Colin is good about understanding where we are compared to the league. Um, and so his expectations of us and his demands on us have shifted from, you know, his first year here coming out of COVID to where he is now, you know, like you said, he, he doesn't take a lot of the losses personally, and he knows it's a growing process. And that was very much true. You know, his first year here where we didn't win a game and the second year here last year where we had the two RMC wins and then not really much other success, even in terms of sets being taken off people. He was very understanding that, you know, we could come into a room and have lost three, nothing or three, one. And he could come in and say like, you know, that was some of the best volleyball you've played all year and we didn't get the result, but we're going in the right direction and we need to keep buying into that. Um, this year, that element is still there, but we're also at the point where there's more weekends where we're coming into the room after and saying like, damn, we let that one slip away. We feel like we were, a better or just as good team as the guys we just played and we couldn't close out. Uh, so he's definitely evolved his expectations as we go on here and we get a little bit more competitive. And so that's a good thing for the program to no longer be happy with a set or two taken off a team. And the expectation now is a win. And one other thing uh, with Trent that I'd, I'd love for you to let us in behind the scenes here. What, what's the deal with the home crowd? Why do so many people go to games? Uh, I'm talking to guys from Guelph after they gave us a little bit of a beatdown. Uh, I'm with York this year. And, and apparently they just start chanting at guys on the bench, be like, we want Josh, and then just like pick a random cat. So let me know, why are so many people like circling that like the, the men's and women's volleyball games are like the fun thing to go do on campus? Yeah, there's like a few things on that end that make Trent unique. Uh, the first one would be because we're such a small school, there's no basketball or hockey team. Uh, so we are the only varsity sports team playing as soon as all the fall sports end in like late October. So we're the, we're kind of the only show in town in terms of like a varsity game people can go to. Uh, so that definitely helps us. Uh, second, um, most of the people that come to our games are other varsity athletes. Uh, Trent's being really, really good about pushing not just like individual teams as like a unit, but like the entire athletics department as a brand. So we have, you know, branding that's all about like being a family. Like our motto is together. We are one Excalibur at the school right now, which was the rebrand they did recently. And it's all about varsity teams supporting each other. So, you know, all the volleyball teams see the huge crowds at our games. It's mostly rugby, soccer, and rowing that are coming out and watching us, uh, lacrosse as well. And then if you come to like the fall sports being played on the field, it's volleyball that isn't in season, like watching all the fall teams play because we know they're going to return the favor to us. And then last part would just be the gym is small and it's easy to make a gym that doesn't seat as many people look full. And that gym is just weirdly loud because it's cemented brick walls on all sides and not a lot of space. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Cause you guys do have some uh, fun ones coming up. I think you played mostly on the road uh, in the first semester. So definitely get some opportunities to play at home there. Um, yeah. I, I got to know, you mentioned you're a baseball guy and I think 
as soon as we hear a baseball guy trying to play volleyball, I think some coach bias enters the conversation. We go, oh, must have an arm swing. So settle it for me. You being a pitcher, I, I know there's different shoulder slots, and I know you're trying to put different spin on the ball. Did it help you play volleyball? Not in the way you'd think, but yes. Uh, so the arm slots and the arm swings are really, really different, and it's something I still struggle with because I like to revert to my baseball mechanics because they're just so like deeply ingrained in me. Uh, but it's very different, like generating, this is like a little, maybe too deep into biomechanics, <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a lot different generating like torque and momentum when you're planted on the ground as a pitcher and like rotating through one foot versus generating torque and momentum while you're airborne. And so that's something I still struggle to do. My arm swing does not suggest I could throw a baseball at like a top 0.5% of the population level. Uh, <laughs> But it's, uh, it does help with, uh, I'd say, more like manipulation of the ball. So like, you know, going thumb up, thumb down, the ability to like differentiate between like your float serve and even like the ability to figure out how to force your float serve to float in a different direction are things I've learned from baseball and like how to manipulate a baseball. I can translate over to volleyball. Nice. Yeah, I think it's too easy where they're... Uh, I, throwing is throwing, like if we were talking about my two-year-old, but when we get to a high-performance athlete, specificity matters, and I think they are different. So when you are running a 30 or quicks or, or whatever systems you're running a trend, are you just worried about hip and shoulder separation? Yeah, because the ground force and air force is going to be totally different in terms of, of how you're planting, but uh, I am curious, what are some similarities maybe? Uh, yeah, the, the biggest similarity is you have to generate that hip and shoulder separation. Your your front hip and your back shoulder need to be separated, and you need to have the ability to just torque through it with your, your midsection. Uh, it's a little different in volleyball because your arm is a lot more of an active part of it in terms of generating momentum with your arm swing, whereas in baseball, like the the cue they always give you is your arms along for the ride. Your arm is your, your bracing mechanism and you're really just using it to slow down your momentum. It's just like carrying your momentum through you. Whereas in volleyball, you have to, because you don't have like that fixed plant point on the ground, you have to really focus on generating it through your arm in unison with your midsection or just after your midsection, which is what I struggle with is like trying to like time everything properly. For sure. For sure. So I'm not saying don't play baseball, definitely play baseball, but it's not as simple as you just take your cleats off and put shoes on and you're the best attacker. But anyways, I digress. Uh, the, the cool thing you also said about baseball was learning about uh, sequencing and kind of like playing the percentages. Like I love that quote in Moneyball where it's like, we're treating this like a game of blackjack and every card we play is changing the odds. So uh, let's go into the weeds on that. How are you using that to play the middle blocker position? Yeah. Uh, so like, I was like weirdly trained for this through baseball in the sense that I was a catcher growing up most of my life. And so I was responsible for coming up with the pitch sequencing and like all of these patterns and all of this stuff. And then as I got way too tall to be a catcher anymore, I became a pitcher and I was on the other end of executing those. Uh, I'd say the biggest carryover, um, especially for middles, is just your ability to, to read and react as a blocker but also your ability to pick up on a cue a setter might have that's going to give away where he's going to set the ball. Like I spend a decent amount of time watching film and like I'm doing my set distribution in terms of, you know, pattern recognition. Like if he gets this pass in this rotation where he's, where is he going? Uh, and baseball certainly helps with that, but it also helped with 
you know, oh, like if the setter like turns his shoulder slightly, like he's setting the right side. If he delays his jump, it's a middle, all of these kind of things. If he jumps early, he's going here. Uh, all of these like little cues that I think I have a skill for because I picked up looking at cues in a hitter's swing from like real time and seeing what pitch would work, what's his timing like. I think those translate over to like as a middle being able to read the opponent's setter and say, okay, like this is where the ball's going because he did X. And for younger middles, does it transfer from video pretty easily for you because you've dedicated so much time to it? Or do you still need to play like five points before? Because like being live is just going to be different than video. But uh, I'm curious, like once one of those tells clicks, like you must have it, right? Or, or does it take a little bit longer to get into the rhythm of the game? Uh, it depends on the tell. Um, I'd say usually it takes maybe just one or two times seeing it in person at the net to really get locked into, okay, like here's how early I can leave on this or here's where I need to be cheating. But you're certainly coming into the game looking for it and you can, you can see it on video and you know it's happening. It's just a matter of translating, you know, that above angle camera that you're looking at on like a perf book or something like that to, okay, it's happening a foot from my face because they passed a three here. Like I need to be able to recognize it in that situation. It typically takes a point or two. And then once you like get the visual of it, you're kind of locked. And with you picking up so much cues and obviously the rotation matters, the, where the pass goes matters, things like that. Um, where are your eyes looking? Like if you had to explain your sequence, where are you bringing attention to? And like, how long are you looking at the setter? Yeah, um, I'm looking at the setter from the second that I see the pass and realize it's not an overpass. So as soon as I know that the pass isn't going over the net and I have some sort of responsibility to defend a dump, a dump or a two swing or go up for a joust, I'm reading the setter because I'll be able to tell the pass location by where the setter moves his feet anyways. So I don't need to watch the ball to see pass location. And then I'm watching the setter approach the ball. I'm watching him jump before he makes contact with the ball. All of that gives you information on where the set might be going. You know, while you're doing this, you take a quick glance at your one-on-one -on -one responsibility in the middle to see what he's running. Uh, if you have like, you know, block patterns you have to follow in terms of fronting someone, you do it. But for the most part, you're watching that approach to the ball and like jump up for the ball to see if there's any tells on where the ball is going to go. Yeah, and just so we don't skip over that for any of our listeners who are kind of like, what, what does that even mean? So don't share any secrets because I don't want Colin uh, phoning me after this, but uh, you can stay in the middle and pure read. Uh, you can kind of front. You can take a step based on where the pass is kind of going. Like, what are some little things, like just in general, not necessarily secrets that you guys would do at Trent that, that younger middle should do? Because I think some of them are just like standing in the middle in a pure read, and I don't think they're playing the percentages as much as what you're talking about here. Yeah, the biggest one I think for young middles, but also for coaches of young middles is force your middles to read and react from a young age because you'd rather them be the, the quote that our coaches use and I'm sure a lot use is you'd rather be right and late than wrong and early. So, you know, there's no point in just commit blocking the middle on every single three pass because at this level, the setter will recognize after two or three of them that you're just commit blocking and then you're giving up a one-on-one -on, -one on the pin every time. So at some point as a middle, you're going to have to learn to read and react and kind of just fight for your life when the other team is in system. And the younger in age you do it, the better. And just like force the basics of 
ball setter, ball hitter. And with your sequence, because I love how long you are looking at the setter and trying to pick up tendencies, is it fair to say when they set these go balls to the outside, you can look at the hitter or are you really just seeing where your pin buddy is and trying to close to them? Yeah, I'm, I'm always looking at the hitter. Uh, so once I have a set location, my in terms of just who it's going to, my next, my next look is the hitter because same kind of sequencing as looking at the setter, the hitter's approach angle will tell you the set location precisely. You don't need to watch the ball to see the set location. So I'm watching the hitter's approach angle because, you know, if your outside over commits a little bit and drifts past the, the left side or the right side swinging, you know, as a middle, that doesn't mean you also should be drifting past them. You need to be able to read where the approach is going and square up and take away as much court as possible. And I'm at fault with this on the show because uh, I think the cat and mouse game that setters play versus the middle blocker is amazing. And I've even said slanderous things like big dumb middle before. But anyways, uh, I tend to give setters a lot of credit that they're looking through the net and they're trying to give misinformation or obviously get that valuable one-on-one. But is there anything you would recommend for young middles that they can do to disrupt the cue read or their information gathering? Because like you said, I think the, the read and react is prime time middle blocker. If you can do that, you'll play this game a long time, but is there opportunities to maybe flash the wrong way or take a step or front a guy? Like what can you do to counter the cat and mouse game? Because I think young setters are actually getting pretty good at, at looking through the net. Yeah. Uh, that's something that like I've developed more like the longer I've been in the OUA. That's certainly not something I was using at like a club level. Uh, but there's certainly opportunities to mess with the setter and just kind of get them thinking or at least double thinking a second time on where the set location is going to go. Uh, so, you know, you can use like what we call like at least at trend, what we call like a ghost step or a phantom step as a middle where, um, while I'm taking my split step, while I'm waiting for the setter to set the ball, I'll also, you know, give like a little bit of emphasis and put all of my body weight and shift a little bit towards one side or the other. Uh, typically, you'd shift towards wherever you think the set's going to go to anyways, because odds are that's their best option in this rotation. So if you shift that way, you're going to be early and you're going to close on that best option. And then if he goes against you, you still trust your ability to close with the split step and you force them out of the run they wanted to go to in the first place. Yeah. So let, let's give our listeners, hopefully some young middles or, or coaches listening. Let's say the ball sprays closer to area four with your level of detail on video. Maybe, you know, the setter likes to make either the short set or the long step in that situation. So for you, would you just take one step towards maybe what the primary or the higher percentage play is there? Yeah, and not even a not even a positive step where I'm I'm gaining anything. Really, just a step that I'm going to recover from in my split step and make the setter think I know where the ball's going, uh, because that's how you force a setter either into mistakes or into the lower the lower percentage runs that they don't want to go to. So you know, like for example, pass gets pushed a little bit towards position four. The stats say they're going to go to the left side here. You take that phantom step, just like the setter sees that foot and that shoulder come into his vision heading towards the left side. And then he's going to release to maybe a C ball that they don't want to set all that much. And you like the percentage you're getting from that. Nice. And I think that's something young middles can start to practice. Like, obviously they're not going to have perf book level data, but I think like halfway through the first set, you could maybe see a tendency of, okay, when the ball sprays off its spot, do they like to make a long or short set, right? Exactly. Yeah. And even just like, okay, it's 
21-19 in this set, and we all know who the best attacker on that team is. Like, let's take a step that way and see if we can force the setter to go away from it. Nice, nice. And we just had uh, Darian Koski on the show. It was, it was awesome to hear about his level of intel with the middle blocker position. Uh, I, I got to know, have you ever considered leaving a seam on purpose? And does coach want to rip your head off when you do that and they score? Yeah, so we leave seams on purpose all the time. Uh, so if you, our general rule as a team is as a middle, if we can't close the block solidly, we would rather go up solid and leave a bit of a seam that our defenders can fill than try and float into the block because you're just going to get tooled the majority of the time. Uh, so as a middle, I purposely leave seams all the time. Uh, you actually get more blocks out of it than you think you would because it messes with an outside when you kind of purposely leave them six. A lot of them are programmed like as they're going up at the net to say like, you know, I'm either going to hit this one cross or line. So sometimes it actually works if you take their line and their cross, leave their six. You trust your defenders behind you to get a dig at this level. And you trust that it's a better percentage play than me throwing my hand into the seam and just hoping for a slowdown. And that's just a relationship you build with the six-back defender that they can kind of sense your rhythm or see there's going to be a gap and you're going to be disciplined not to reach, but they have to be disciplined to fill, right? Yeah, it's it's a system of like, you know, as a, six back defender you trust that they're going to read and react and if you close the block they're going to get deep into sticks for high high off hands and if you don't fill that block they're going to take a step up and just try and dig whatever gets swung at them is this something you grasped right away or was this something you had to work on because i can just think if i was playing middle i would be so tempted to reach because i feel like i would always be late or under stress that i would just be trying to close all the time and it would be really hard to get myself to be like Zen and think that I could just take away space without closing. I've, I've been lucky that I've been coached by a lot of great coaches who also happened to be middles. And so this was something I was taught from a pretty young age. You know, like my first club season, I had David O'Coin as a coach while he was still playing as a middle at Fanshawe. The season after that, I had Mike Hoya as he was finishing his last year at Western. Uh, and during my time at Trent, I've had Tyler Shearhorn for a little and so just getting the insight from them and hearing like someone like Mike say like, you know, yeah, Western, like I, I purposely leave a seam in the block all the time because it's just like the higher percentage play at this level. Like if you aren't stable on your block, you're going to get tooled. And just hearing that from a young age and having the understanding of, you know, I don't have to close every block. That's the goal. But the main goal is take up as much space of the court as you can and leave your defenders as little as possible that they have to dig. And when you're kind of at the mercy of the setter in those like plus plus perfect pass situations, how are you figuring out the rhythm of the pipe or going outside? Like, I feel like those are almost ones where really good coaches kind of say like, okay, they had the advantage there to side out. But I mean, we still want to battle and compete. So how as a middle are you fighting off those situations when they just have every possible option in full rhythm? Yeah. So in any situation like that, where it's like a plus plus pass and it's just like, Crap, like where could they go uh we'll have it like predetermined in our game plan like okay like what are the percentages here that they're running in this situation so where do we want to cheat where are we okay with leaving a one-on-one or in some cases a one-on-none for like some c-balls for different teams in the league like it's more and more common in the oua now that teams are just staying down on each other's c-balls a lot of the time uh 
And so just little things like that. So like if I'm playing a Queens, if they pass a perfect, perfect, and Eric six missed the front court left side, I know there's still probably a pretty decent chance that where that's where the ball's going. And I just need to hold with my middle for as long as I need to, to see the ball going there, but I'm cheating a step in that direction to start. with. Yeah. I find that fascinating. So you're saying you have a commitment to a game plan and if the other team's middle kind of scores into a gap, you kind of go, okay, that's fine. But I wasn't allowed to be late on the left side. So is that again, something that you had to come to terms with as a middle or did that just click with you right away where it's like, we are blocking the primary play here. And if we lose to the primary, we got big problems, but if their fourth option pops off, we can live with that. Yeah. It's something you kind of, I think it's another one that baseball helps me with uh, because it's the same thing. Like, you know, if you have like, four hitter coming up to the plate that is like at the level I was playing at, you had guys that were first round picks in the MLB draft the next year. It's like, okay, you know, like if we walk this guy here, like that's not that bad, but like we are not giving him like a down the middle fastball to hit under any circumstances, even if it's like a three Oh count, we'll take the walk. And it's kind of the same thing with like, okay, we are not giving Eric Sixna a one-on-one with our setter here, but if their middle who gets five attempts a game gets a, one of his kills here, we'll live with it. And to, to flip it a little bit and go to the offensive side of the ball, uh, again, just by doing the show, I get to talk to so many awesome people like yourself. We had Dustin Snyder on the show, and obviously everybody in the gym knew that Gavin Smith was going to get the ball a lot, but he still had to keep the middle engaged that when the one out of six times he did run the 30 on the separation that like they were ready and they could kill. So, as a middle, how do you come to terms with that, knowing that you're kind of functional in the game plan, but you're not going to get the same amount of attempts as the outsides are? Yeah, uh, I think the biggest one is at least like the middles on our team. We take like a pretty decent amount of pride, both in practice or in a game, of forcing the other middle to jump with you and creating that one-on-one. So it, the way we all look at it as middles in our our gym is if we pass like a perfect perfect and we're in system and i run the 50 and the middle jumps with me and now every single option in the gym has a one-on-one and the pipes being released like i did my job i i can't set myself the ball it's not my job to give myself the ball and if i created an advantage for my teammates i did my job on that play you know if anyone's listening that's a volleyball parent and you want to help take stats for coach i think that's a stat we should start to keep is like almost like the hockey assist where the setter gets the real assist. You kind of get the second assist for setting up the one-on-one or getting the other middle to kind of yip with you because I think the, the whole offense functions around creating space and hitting into that space. But if you don't have a functional middle or a middle that the other team has to respect, then it just all falls to pieces in my opinion. Exactly. And like middles in the league kind of play that game with each other. You know, like if we if we get someone and like we knew we were never going to get the ball in this situation and they jump with us, like kind of through the net, they'll be like, oh yeah, like I got you on that one. Like, you know, we had one at Queens where I commit blocked with Dax thinking he was going to get the ball. And then all of a sudden there's an Eric six and a pipe over the top and there's just no block up. And he's looking through the net and he's like, yeah, you, you know, you should have jumped with that one. And just like little stuff like that. Like we're all kind of aware of it as like a position group and it's like a little game we play. Sometimes it's just your team's game plan that night that you're commit blocking everything. And it's just like, it is what it is at that point, but other times it's just like that cat and mouse game. 
And with the, the speed, a lot of teams are running the offense right now. Any advice you can give to either a coach or young middle about transition hitting where I think some coaches have almost conceived it where it's like, this is really hard. So if you go and block their right side, I want you to hit a 30. And if you go and block their left side, it's either a 50 or back quick. So it, is it that simple because the game's so fast? Those are the only options you're going to get? Or what do you like to do in transition? Uh, in transition, it's that's where I think more so than in serve receive, your relationship between setter and middle kind of comes into play, uh, just in terms of like the number of reps you've had together, but also your ability to audible mid play and like make those calls. So I think for the most part, like if a ball's hard driven past your block, you're probably going up somewhere in the zone. You set that block in on the next offensive opportunity, just because unless you get like a really plus plus dig, you're not going to have the time to transition and have a pass quality high enough that you're getting set as a middle. So for the most part, it's just, you know, if I'm getting set here, this ball's probably coming pretty quick. So if I block the left side, I'm rolling out of my block landing and taking probably a two-step approach here. And I'm either getting to that back quick or I'm running some sort of float past the setter into the 40 zone. Same thing with coming through on blocking the right side. I'm most of the time probably going to be transitioning to a 30. And if I can, I'm floating into that 40 or 50 zone. And for anyone rolling their eye being like, Josh, we don't set middle and transition. You should start to think about it because the efficiency rate you guys are hitting is unbelievable. I get that it's really hard off a dig, but if you can run the middle and transition, it's lights out right now. Yeah, even something that we've incorporated and we've seen a few teams use is we've started running step in transition. And even that scoring, because teams don't expect it, it's a little bit slower for your middle to get to. And a lot of the times teams in our league, when you have the uh, the backcourt right side, if they're not blocking the C ball as like a priority, they'll front the setter and a bit of the middle with their left side. So if you can force that left side to make a decision between a setter dump and either the 60 or the step, you then have a blocker that's normally not making those kind of decisions forced to make them all the time. Definitely, definitely. And I like how you just talked about setter uh, middle relationship there. So again, uh, put your advice hat on. Do you think when middles are learning that connection that the ball should be set to a spot, uh, should be a distance away from the setter? Or would you even say middles should know from a young age to always attack the gap and that's going to be changing as the match progresses or what the blockers are doing? Yeah, uh, in terms of like just being able to find the connection, um, the biggest thing we try to use with our setters and the one that's helped me the most with this is let the setter see as much of your body as possible. Be as open to the setter as you possibly can. So if I'm like running a 30 and the setter's pushed, maybe it's a, a two pass and they're trying to force it. Like I want him to be able to see like the entirety of my chest. And I also want him to be able to see that that off arm, that left arm, like up in the air towards the net. So he has like a, a zone he can shoot for on my body, where if it's anywhere between like my head and that front hand, I can do something with it. Uh, as a middle, when you like, kind of get into those zones, uh, a lot of like the, the pop and floats and the variation of trying to like drag a middle with you kind of off to one arm are pre-called and serve-receive. Uh, and then it's just your best audible that you can in the game. And it's really a... In serve-receive, it's a setter decision where they want to put you. And in transition, it's the middle calling that audible. So a lot of the time, like as a middle, being in transition is when you have the opportunity to kind of dictate how you're getting set and where you're getting set. Yeah, th this is awesome. And 
with your style of play and your leadership style, obviously you're the captain of the team. How do you communicate to the setter? Because I think they they have to own a lot of the mistakes. I think hitters are divas, especially Eddie left sides out there listening. If I see one more setter, one more guy get blocked and then say the set was too low, that that's on you, man. If it was above the height of the net when it got to you, you shouldn't have got canned like you did. But anyways, I digress. Uh, as a middle, are you letting them know if you felt like your timing was off, if they need to be faster? Like, how do you open up that communication? Because it is going to happen quick. And I think setters take a lot of grief from their teammates. So how are you kind of being forgiving a little bit, but still demanding? Yeah. Uh, so like as a middle, if I'm late or early on something, like I'll tell the setter, like at least like in terms of in the game, it's sometimes kind of difficult to think like in real time, like, was I late? Was I early? Was it like a set height issue? Uh, but like, we'll go back and watch film after every game. And if we have two games in a weekend in between the two games and say like, okay, like, where were my, like, was I in the air on your set contact point? Like, was I on time? Was I late? Um, was it just like a little too low, a little too high? Did it like not get pushed enough? Like, those are more things we'll talk about after a game, uh, unless it's like glaringly obvious in the moment. Uh, for the most part, the feedback I'm trying to give my setters in a game is if a middle is like respecting me in terms of like in transition, or if he's like leaving early uh if he's commit blocking me that's the feedback i'm trying to give my setter in real time is like hey like this middle's commit blocking me like you can leave the pins here or hey this middle's like leaving early if you run like this on the next like reception like we should have a gap to swing into uh so most of the feedback i'm giving them is tactical rather than technical in terms of like where they have opportunities to disperse the offense as opposed to like hey that set was bad and i'm sure they appreciate that and it goes a long way yeah, and, you know, everyone as an attacker is not above, like, if you get, like, a low set, just coming to them and saying, like, in the huddle, like, hey, next one a little bit higher, like, all good, or, hey, that one was, like, a little too tight. But for the most part, like, I'm not trying to bombard my setter with just, like, a bunch of, like, corrections on his sets and just trust that they'll figure it out. And, and last advice question I'll beg you for here. Uh, something that's unique about your position is you're really a three-rotation player. So after you rotate off, how are you balancing taking your rest while still staying engaged? Cause obviously when you're in the front court, your, your jumps are going to add up like crazy. Uh, you're going to be the hardest working guy in terms of like covering the distance of the court, but how do you still kind of not zone out for those three rotations or still have a feel for what's going on in the match? Yeah. Uh, so every middle is like a little bit different with that. I'd say like I've gotten into a pretty good routine of when I'm off the court and I'm lived out, I'm sitting down on the bench the entire time and I'm watching the game. Uh, and we have like a pretty good thing going where I'll sit beside my liberos. And as we watch the game, me and whatever liberos off at the time, I'll be like, Hey, like, you know, do you see like this? Because like, I think I see this and they'll either say like, yeah, like I'm picking up on that too. Like we can make some sort of adjustment or like, no, I don't really see that because, you know, like as a middle, you're largely responsible for kind of quarterbacking that block, but the liberos coordinating that back row defense and the serve receive. So a lot of the times you're working in tandem with that libero to like set everything up on the court. So most of what I'm doing is just like talking through like either what happened while I was on the court or what we're watching while we're off and where we can make the adjustment. Man, this has been so cool. I mean, you made your debut on Sharp Cuts, the B show. I'll say that in hopes that Garrett comes back someday. Uh, but uh, thank you for making your debut on the A show. This is awesome. 
one thing we have built into a, a tradition here is we just learned about you playing at the highest level, but something odd or unique tends to happen in volleyball just because we're a bunch of characters. So I was hoping you could share uh, one more funny story before we let you go. Yeah, we've, we've had a few, uh, you know, my high school team definitely has like some, some fun stories, but probably not like podcast appropriate. Um, <laughs> I'd say like one that sticks out was my second year. Like we were kind of having a bit of a miserable season. We didn't win a game that year and we had one road or sorry, no, my second year we won. One. I was thinking my first year, uh, but we hadn't won a game at this point. We're on a road trip. We had the old Brock McMaster back-to-back days when you went to two different places and we finished our Mac game. It was a one win trend team against McMaster. You can probably guess how that turned out. Uh, and our bus couldn't even like get into the Burridge parking lot because of how much snow had fallen during our game. And so we were stuck there for a little bit. And then it was like a conversation where it's like, Oh, um, we need a hotel for the night all of a sudden, uh, because we're not getting home. Uh, so it was kind of a, a funny one in the sense of like, we were stranded in Hamilton and had to call the hotel we were at the day before to beg them to let us back into our rooms because we had nowhere. Uh, but then also just turned into a, a fun moment because we had what's pretty rare, which is a night all together as a team where we don't have a game to worry about the next day or like the next two days. And so you don't have to worry about like, Oh, like I got to get to sleep at this time. I got to like worry about doing this and this for recovery. It was more just like, Oh, we got a chance to hang out as a team, like do stupid stuff, like a group of 18 to 24 year olds do when they're left alone and just kind of like hang out. And like, I think that really helped our team, like getting to know each other a little bit more and just spend like a whole 24 hours together where we had nothing else to do. Man, you guys have had some gnarly travel, like stranded in Hamilton, which I mean, maybe doesn't sound as bad as I think it is, but it's still not the greatest. But uh, Charlie was saying when you guys played Western last year, didn't you play on a Friday, Sunday or something? Yeah, we were there Vanier Cup weekend. So we had Friday at eight, Sunday afternoon. Uh, so that was that was a long one. We had the day off in London and I'm from London. So we just had the, the whole team over to my house for that day off. So that was nice. We've had a few. Our bus broke in the preseason this year in Gatineau, and we were stranded at the gym for a bit and had to wait for a new bus to show up. Uh, yeah, we've had we've had some interesting ones. Wrong hotel reservations over the years, just a whole bunch of stuff. And it's all part of it. It's all part of it. And again, when the when the Trent Excalibur have an alumni game, you guys can all come back and tell these awesome stories because uh, again, I think these guys are going to be standing on your shoulders, and, and hopefully, you can spark it as soon as this season and start to add it up because I, I think you guys got a good thing going. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and telling your story and just sharing what the team's up to, and wish you the best of luck as we go into the second semester. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me.